the Farm Advisory Service podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government. Hello and welcome to this Farm Advisory Service podcast. My name is Alec Perry and this is Thrill of the Hill. In today's episode of Thrill of the Hill, I sit down with British Moorlands consultant Dick Bartlett and we discuss the state of Scotland's heather, the impact of climate change on the farmed upland environment and tackle some of the issues raised by farmers and landowners across Scotland, including how to manage heather beetle, the impact of muir burn and heather swiping and issues around rewilding and tree planting. Hello Dick, how's it going? Good morning, Alexander. Dick, uh, firstly, let me say thank you for taking the time to come on and sit down with us today and have a bit of a chat. We really appreciate it. Do you want to just give our listeners a bit of an introduction as to what it is that you do, uh, a bit of your background and how you came to be part of British Moorlands? Yes, it's a pleasure. Um, I first got involved with moorland and heather management when I came to live in the north of Scotland just over 20 years ago. And uh, I was shocked at the time to find that many of the um, what used to be excellent grouse moors had fallen into disuse and neglect. And I found out that this was due to the high cost of operations that using traditional methods of moorland management, uh, very labor intensive, so the costs were high. And production was low because of... um, predation issues and the management wasn't responding to the changing climate. So as a farmer, um, of a third generation farmer, I knew that uh, technology can help in these situations. So I applied that and set up British Moorlands and <clears throat> we restored three moors in the first four years um, under my own banner. And since then, <clears throat> we've been working for other estates and farmers. So um, we see that the va- the value of heather, uh, if any farmer has got heather of any significant amount on his land, it's certainly something to be valued and looked looked after from the conservation point of view. And also, if there's any possibility of a few grouse there being used for sport, uh, shooting, or even falconry. Fantastic. Sounds like you're the right man to be speaking to this morning then. So the idea with the podcast, Dick, is that uh, we talk about the issues that are affecting sectors that are involved in the farmed upland environment. Um, So today we wanted to have a kind of broad discussion around moorland management and heather management specifically. Um, Do you want to just get us started off with an overview of Scotland's current uh, condition of, of the heather that we're managing? Yeah, sure. The um, It's a very varied picture in Scotland because uh, heather grows best on drier ground. So most of the heather that you'll see in Scotland or, or the uh, large areas which are dominated by heather are on the eastern side on, and the northeast side <coughs> where it's drier. Uh, over on the west side, the, the moorland tends to be more um, acidic grassland, peat, and bogs and so on. So when you look at the total of Scotland's moorland, only about half of it is managed. 
and most of that will be on, on the eastern side. The biggest challenges, uh, of course, now are <clears throat> climate change because all the seasons seem to be getting mixed up. We're getting unseasonable weather um, <clears throat> at extraordinary times of year, and we're getting long spells of um, dry weather, cold weather, wet weather, which is not conducive to the moorland habitat or, or the wildlife that lives on it. Perhaps an element of the farmed up and upland environment that uh, we as farmers don't pay very much attention to is the issue of gamekeeping. Can you give us a bit of an update on what the state of play is for gamekeeping in Scotland and is the outlook from the industry positive? Um, <clears throat> it's far from positive. Um, Gamekeepers are not happy, uh, particularly the moorland gamekeepers, because um, we, we've got all sorts of regulations coming our way, uh, grouse moor licensing, which we don't know the details of what that's going to involve. But um, there's a general fear, based on past experience, that uh, the bureaucrats will get their hands on <clears throat> the job and interfere in most inappropriate ways, which is neither good for the environment or the people that, that work on it. I'm sure that we can come back to some of those issues. There's a lot of really important stuff there. I'm wondering if we could just kick off the, the heather discussion. Can you give us a bit of a breakdown on the characteristics of good heather and, and how do we identify heather when it's in good condition? Right. Well, heather is a actually a shrub, a dwarf shrub. And it's certainly in, uh, in Britain uh, that the heather appeared when man took the trees away from both <coughs> high ground and low ground. When the trees were gone, the soil became leached and poor in nutrients and acidic. And that's just the sort of condition that, that Heather likes to grow in. So you will find it um, on, in such places as um, the lowland heaths of southern England right up to the, the moors of the, of the Northern Isles. It's mainly confined to between uh, 1,000 feet and 2,000 feet, but there is some lower levels than that. Uh, so it, it really is a man-made habitat, and because of that, uh, it's of particular interest. It has a special IUCN conservation status uh, as an extremely rare international habitat. And the British Isles have 75% of heather moorland in the world, and most of that is in Scotland. So it, it is looked after and, and managed on the eastern side of Scotland very well, generally, where there are grouse moors. And <clears throat> to look at heather, if you're deciding whether it's in good condition or not, um, it's fairly fairly easy to spot for a farmer because uh, the, the young, <clears throat> young heather, which is growing well, has a sort of lush, um, dense, vigorous appearance. Uh, the stems are close together, sort of two or three millimetres diameter, something like that. And as it grows, um, the stems get thicker and they will come up to 20, 20 mil <clears throat> or more in diameter. 
and the height of the heather will build up to 12 to 15 inches. And that's probably the optimum size of where it should be. Beyond that, it becomes mature and eventually it becomes degenerate. And uh, the mature and degenerate stuff, you will see a lot of grey in it. Um, Thick stems, stems falling over and gaps in the heather. And and that's... um, definitely needs management, either by burning, preferably, or cutting. The cycle for this uh, life cycle of heather from from one burning or cutting to the next one will be quite short, uh, eight to ten years on lower ground, particularly if it's south-facing. But on the higher ground, where it's colder, and windier, the interval could be as long as 20 or 25 years. And right on the tops of the hills where there's a lot of wind wind blow and clip, uh, it never gets more than three or four inches high anyway, so <clears throat> you wouldn't expect to manage that heather at all. What, in your experience, Dick, do you put that down to? Why is heather management in the west coast of Scotland more difficult than across the east? Uh, it, it's the rainfall, really. Um, it's it likes dry dry ground, um, and you will see it in patches uh, on the west side of Scotland and the north on on well drained ground. But um, that seems to be a sort of minority of it. You know, for, for some reason, I suppose the uh, <clears throat> the climate generally. Um, is more favourable to it uh, further east and that's where it's been looked after because um, on the west side it tends to be, uh, heather tends to be managed for, or if it's managed at all, tends to be managed for grouse, sorry not grouse, um, sheep and deer and that's a much more extensive management system. For instance the fires which are put in on ground like that will be much bigger than you would see on a grouse moor uh, and that's purely to get rid of the old heather and to encourage young heather <clears throat> if there is any there to to grow of course so dick moorland's quite a, a dynamic habitat there's a lot of different parties interested in how it's used where do you stand on integrating agriculture and agricultural production onto to moorland heath Um, from from the grouse moor management point of view, it's definitely an advantage to have livestock on the hill. Um, particularly, well, essentially, there must be hill breeds to do any good. Um, in the case of, of cattle, the um, the hooves create depressions and and holes in the ground which hold water, uh, which is good for microclimate of insects. Um, and uh, providing drinking water for for small birds and chicks. The dung of the animals, of course, helps the insect population. Uh, Historically, there's been quite a lot of overgrazing of heather when we had the headage payments, the the stocking rates were too high, Um, but that's not a problem at the moment. Um, There's a shortage 
of livestock on the hill because it doesn't really pay the farmer to, to put them up there because of the labour content and they're not getting very good food. And uh, sheep <clears throat> are used as um, tick mops. In other words, they are treated with um, an acaricide, which gets rid of ticks. And as they roam about on the heather, uh, the ticks jump onto them and get killed by the the chemical that's on on the sheep. Now, that's uh, an expensive operation. The the sheep have to be uh, taken in for treatment about five times a year and put back up again. And uh, it's not a a viable uh, enterprise for the farmer. So in the case of grouse moor management, then the the grouse moor interest normally pays some or all of the cost of this... um, treatment of the sheep and the stocking. So this will be no surprise to you, Dick, but Muirburn has been a really contentious issue in the last couple of years. I'm wondering if you could give your opinion on where you stand on the issue of Muirburn, whether or not you think that it's beneficial for a hill, um, and maybe you can talk a little bit about how we go about burning safely. Yeah, burning <clears throat> is the traditional form of heather management which has been done for literally thousands of years and uh, it's it's probably the best technique for heather because um, it's what they call a fire adapted plant in that um, it produces quite a lot of seed which falls down into the soil or the peat where it lies dormant and the the fire going over the um, over the seed, the fire and the smoke breaks the dormancy of the seed and allows the seed to uh, to germinate. It's the same same sort of um, life cycle that you would get with silver birch. That's another example, but there are one or two other plants that respond well to that. Um, so it it does make a very good job of um, con- of controlling and managing heather. Um, the criticism that's going around uh, at the moment, which is completely false, is that it burns the peat, which is a valuable carbon store and and obviously must not be touched because there's huge amounts of carbon locked up in there. But burning is controlled. It's limited to um, the period between October the 1st and the middle of April. And uh, within that time, most of the year, most of that period, uh, the ground underneath the heather is damp or even soaking wet, so that when a heather fire runs, it's only burning the vegetation and it doesn't get down to the uh, the base layer. In fact, even the moss is usually um, damp enough to escape um, being burnt. <clears throat> Traditional way of, of checking that this is a cool, fire and safe way of doing it, you can put a Mars bar or your mobile phone in front of the fire, it will run over it and neither will be damaged or melted. And uh, that's quite a dramatic way of showing. So that is the, that is the safe and best way of, of, of managing heather. Uh, if you don't do that, if, if burning is not allowed, which um, some conservation authorities are insisting that it's not, the risk then is that the heather continues to grow the fuel load increases because of the amount of vegetation that's accumulating 
uh, as it gets taller and uh, more woody in its stems. So when the when it does catch fire, which is very often from a picnicker or or a walker, nearly always a human cause, accidental human cause, then that fire will be extremely hot. And it, if it's running in the spring period when people are out and about, then the the peat will have dried out by then, and it will catch catch fire and burn the peat. Plus, of course, destroying a huge amount of wildlife, bird nests, chicks, um, everything else. It's, it's an absolute disaster. So that's why um, co- conservationists who know what they're talking about are very insistent on, on being able to keep the fire burning option. And Scottish Fire and Rescue are, are very much in favour of doing that as well. There will be some land managers out there, Dick, who feel that burning maybe isn't the most effective method of management. And maybe there's there's a range of climactic reasons and, and topography reasons for that. But um, I'm wondering if you could discuss heather swiping as well and, and how effective is that as an alternative to, to burning? Well, we started... Um here with heather swiping. In fact, we we did 10 years before we plucked up courage to light any fires. Um, Moorland fires, uh, Moorland management fires, uh, it is a a learning process and and you you, you tend to be a bit frightened to begin with, but as you gain confidence, you you can do more and and you become more efficient and effective. Um, So, I would advise anyone who is uh, thinking about managing heather, particularly farmers, because they've got the equipment, the tractors and and the cutters available, uh, don't be afraid of doing it with with a cutter because um, we have found that uh, from the the grouse point of view anyway, um, the uh, results are even better than, than burning. But from... From a conservation and an ecological point of view, and also from the point of view of, of creating uh, fire breaks in moorland vegetation, the, the cleaner burn that you get with fire is better because um, you don't have a stubble residue, which you, you would get a stubble and debris residue, which you would get with cutting. Um, <clears throat> after the fire, it's, it's pretty, pretty bare and it would be a very good fire break. Any advice, Dick, for any land managers out there who feel that they want to control heather and uh, clear mature heather with grazing livestock? Any thoughts on on grazing densities or or type of stock? Um, And uh, any other thoughts on that? Uh, It's not... It does help, but it's it's not something which you could um, manage and rely on, really. Um, Where cattle and sheep have been grazing heather it, it has a, a neater appearance it's more it looks rather like um a clipped hedge in in a garden like the top of the bush of heather is is quite sort of neat and, and you can see it's been eaten down um so it stops it getting too 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 coarse and straggly but um you you certainly wouldn't want grazing in the winter that that's that's a bad thing but uh, it doesn't any doesn't do any harm to to have cattle and sheep up there in the summer and as i said before from from the point of view of of conservation providing 
uh, invertebrates, for chicks and uh, wildlife in general, it's a good thing to, to have the, the stock on the hill, yes. So in the last couple of weeks, Dick, I, I've been reading articles suggesting that uh, particularly where a hill is heavily stocked with sheep, there may be issues of heather loss um, in favour of millennia grasses or, or other upland grass types. I'm wondering if you have any experience of that. Is that something that you've come across? And how do we combat that? Is is native breed cattle a, an alternative option for heather restoration? Yes, um, the, the stocking rate uh, has to be uh, has to be approved, um, and, it's, and it's fairly light. And also, it needs to be uh, evenly distributed. That's why it's very important that you have hill breeds that actually range over the hill so that the grazing pressure is, is even. Um, in the southern uplands in particular, you, you can see endless hills which have lost nearly all of their heather. And that was through overgrazing of sheep when the herdage payments were on in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, and um, you can still see heather growing there where the sheep don't go, i.e. beside the uh, the motorway, you can still, on the banks there, you can see heather growing fine now. So you, you can tell that it's um, it's a natural thing that would grow if the grazing pressure were, was taken off. More generally, do you have any kind of top tips that you would give to our listeners with regards to the impact of climate change and biodiversity decline? I mean, what should farmers and landowners be doing to manage the hills responsibly in your mind? Um, there, there are several things which um, farmers and landowners are encouraged to do. And there are some quite useful grants and assistance packages available uh, to do this. Um but to summarise it, I would say that um, what's required is to get the heather in good condition, and that means by uh, cutting or burning the the old heather so that the young can um, can come back. Um, <clears throat> and but particularly at the moment, um, the carbon story it is all the rage, and there's a lot that can be done on the moors to improve carbon lock up and retention and to prevent it from being oxidized. So if I can just summarize that in a minute. Uh, certainly, if there are any man-made drains, or called, they're sometimes called grips, uh, that are running across the moor, uh, these were put in misguidedly back in the 1950s and 60s to improve grazing. Uh, they didn't do that, and uh, th th they just were became fairly useless. And if these can be blocked up using uh, farm machinery or um, a 360 digger, something like that, um, then that that creates a wetter uh, habitat all around the, the, the grip. And that encourages peat to form, which is what um, is locking up carbon. So the story is that we must do everything we can to encourage the, the sphagnum moss and the peat, and that, that means rehydrating the moors. The other thing which um, is encouraged is that where there is bare, bare peat exposed to the air, that is gradually decomposing and therefore 
losing carbon to the atmosphere, and that needs stopping. So that's done in two ways. First of all, it's done by um, scattering seed, uh, which can be cut heather taken from another part of the moor, um, onto that so that uh, you try and get the heather to re-establish on it. And if that's not too successful, then a surer, surer way of doing it is probably with a 360-type digger to scoop divots off the surrounding area and plant them on the bare surface to uh, to start revegetating it. And then it will <clears throat> grow out from those patches. Also, uh, if there's any steep slopes with bare peat, then they need uh, making less steep. So there's a reprofiling job which the digger can do uh, while he's there as well. And that all helps to uh, conserve carbon and to prevent carbon loss from the existing store of carbon. The amount of carbon stored in our peatland is amazingly big. It's bigger than than the rainforest of Amazon and West Africa. And so <clears throat> it, it's vital that, uh, that uh, peatland is protected. And of course, it's uh, not peatlands not just in uh, in Britain it does occur throughout the whole of the um, northern part of, of the western hemisphere fascinating stuff um I had no idea about the the, the comparison to, to the rainforest that's, that's really interesting we've seen recently dick that the discussion around carbon credits and carbon sequestration and, and the carbon code has become a much bigger issue do you have any concerns over the carbon code and what the impact could be on, on Scotland's moorlands? Um, <clears throat> I don't have much information on this, uh, apart from hearing about it. Uh, it's early days, and I, as I understand it, um, if you go for carbon credits, if, if you sell carbon or if you get income from carbon credits, then you are legally obliged to provide certain outcomes and that sounds um, risky to me if I was a farmer I'd be very wary of it also carbon credits have been involved in a number of um, dodgy financial schemes and uh, it's it's a route which I would tread along extremely carefully no that's absolutely fine so if you don't mind, Dick, I'm just going to, we're going to play a hypothetical here. Um, I am an upland farmer. I have extensive amounts of moorland that I'm responsible for managing. I'm wondering if you could give me your top tips on dealing with some of these issues here. Um, some of these issues that uh, some of our clients have, have raised with us in the past. Do you have any advice on managing heather beetle, for example? Um, I work with a number of landowners who say that it's becoming a bigger and bigger issue for them. What advice would you give to people who want to get on top of, of heather beetle? <clears throat> That's a difficult one. It's an increasing problem. Um, the heather trusts are looking into it, as are other people as well. Um, if it Personally, if it was a light infestation and, and it was in heather that was uh, reasonably healthy and still growing, um, I would wait and see before taking any action because uh, 
in many cases, it looks terrible, but it does recover. But for more mature heather and degenerate heather, if it got into that, um, I would burn it straight away or as soon as possible because um, you're not going to gain anything by by keeping such heather around anyway. And uh, if you can if you can burn it, uh, as I explained before, uh, then you get the regeneration of um, seed from breaking the dormancy in the ground. And so you, <clears throat> you can start again. Now, for that, you would need to burn with probably a slightly hotter fire than normal, which would mean lighting it uh, so that it uh, came in from the side of the wind rather than following the wind. Uh, and that would get rid of the the carpet of, of dead moss and so on so you'd get right down to the right down to the peat or the soil uh, which would give the sheep give the seedlings um, a good start and sheep should be kept off it uh, while the seedlings are coming up they're very vulnerable to being pulled up by sheep so seed, sheep want to be kept away uh, until it's safe to have them back on that ground again you mentioned their uh, wait and see what kind of recovery time are we looking at when we're talking about something like a, a heather beetle infestation? How, how long should you be waiting? Oh, a year or two at most. Uh, you, you, would, you should see it then. If it's going to recover, it would be um, that quick. And do you have any thoughts or advice on control of invasive and non-native scrub species on the uplands? Obviously, that's going to have a huge impact on drying out valuable habitat on the uplands. Yes, that, that's um, that's a big problem. We've got now quite a lot of um, non-native softwood conifers in in commercial plantations, and the seed from them seems to travel a long way and can invade into open moorland, which is what you exactly what you don't want. You don't want any. Um, any sort of tree or bush where predators can can perch up on <clears throat> and drop down onto the ground nesting birds and their chicks. So uh, spruce seedlings uh, need control, also rhododendron and gorse. It's um, a matter of cutting them or burning them, and then th- they will they will normally regrow fairly fairly strongly and. At at a particular stage, when when the leaf is soft enough, uh, it's best then to, to go in with um, chemical to control the regrowth. But <clears throat> don't expect to do it in a year. You, you, you can take, um, say, the first year you're going to be cutting or burning, then the following year you'd be spraying, and you might have to do spraying um, top-ups, follow-ups for two or three years after that. Just on on that issue, I think there's there's an interesting question here, Dick. With uh, with Scottish government having such high tree planting targets, do you have concerns over the loss of habitat in the uplands um, due to that? There is this perception that your uplands is your poorer quality ground, and that uh, let's get it planted before we look at in by. Is there any kind of conflict there, or any any thoughts you want to discuss? Well, yes, it it is. Um, there is pressure to in, increase the amount of um, softwood plantation. I think by about fifty percent. Um, but 
we come back to this question of the heather moorland being a particularly rare and endangered habitat. And the Scottish government's got to weigh up whether it's prepared to, to see that disappear or, or whether it'll want to go to um, uh, pu- purely commercial forestry. And the carbon story between the two is, is far from clear because there's a tremendous amount of carbon is used in the um, preparation of ground for planting and also for management, uh, cutting, thinning and transport of the timber away. And it's not all pluses. You know, there are certain costs which uh, are involved on the carbon side which have to be taken into account. And I don't think these are fully appreciated. <clears throat> and that the heather, the heather itself um, d- deserves to be uh, protected because not only um, for itself, but it is a habitat for endangered birds, endangered wildlife, particularly wading birds, which are ex- on the verge of extinction in, in the case of curlews in many parts of Britain, uh, lapwings, um, golden plover, mountain hares, all this thing, all these things. If Scottish government is serious about keeping these going, then they have to be looking to preserve the moorlands and the uplands. I think that's a that's a great message. We actually have a speaker lined up to come on from working for waders, so um, I'm I'm sure he'll be very much encouraged by your your message there. Just on the issue of, of biodiversity decline. Um, obviously, that's a huge issue, and we need to collectively get on top of that. Um, can you talk a bit about how heather management and restoration is beneficial to biodiversity in the uplands? Yes, the um, the main benefit uh, from the biodiversity point of view would would come from a, gr- a grouse ball management type of uh, heather management, and that is that the the heather is managed in in small patches. Um, the flowers are quite small, maximum of say fifty meters wide and a hundred meters long. But that would be uh, much bigger than most grouse moor managers w- would have. It's usually much smaller than that. And the the aim is to create a patchwork of he- heather at different ages and stages because uh, that caters for all the different requirements of the wildlife and the biodiversity that live up there, um, they all need different types of environment, microclimate, at certain times of the year <clears throat> when they've got chicks or when they're, when they're having eggs and so on. And just to take you to the, the curlew, which is one of the most critically endangered birds, uh, that likes to nest on completely bare open ground and you'll only get that really from wh- where there's been a fire or um, cutters have made a, a, a big open patch. Uh, birds like grouse, they like open ground to roost in. Um, that's because if they were roosting close to thick cover, foxes, etc., could creep up in the cover and, and jump out on, on them. But <clears throat> if they're out in the open, they get a chance of hearing or seeing something coming, even if it's, if it's in the night. So um, 
the the other point of the small fires um, and the small patches is that it creates the maximum amount amount of edge edge habitat that's critical for chicks of ground nesting birds like like grouse curlews etc because they've got um, the open patch where they can get their food and they can dry off in the sun uh, roam about and get uh, insects <clears throat> and eat young plants of heather and uh, blaeberry and so on um, but they're near the the cover of say 12 to 15 inches tall heather and they can dart back into that when when danger's coming such as um, a bird of prey or, or something that's, that's coming to uh, try and grab them so <clears throat> The, the more edge and diversity of habitat that you can get, the better. Um, when you burn or cut heather, uh, it's usually part of um, a, a mixture of plants. Also, the first thing that will come back from a cut or a burn in a dry environment will be the berry plants such as uh, blaeberry, and cowberry, that's the red one. And these are all important food sources for all sorts of birds and wildlife. On on the wetter ground, the heather will be growing uh, amongst grasses such as cotton grass. And, and the buds of cotton grass are a particularly rich source of protein and energy for, for birds and deer in the spring when they're building up for their breeding cycle. Just on the issue of predator control, Dick, what what do you think are 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 crow and fox populations out of control in this country? Is it something that we need to be paying more attention to, or are are natural predators just something that we need to to learn to live with? It it, it varies tremendously according to where whether higher densities or or no densities of gamekeepers in in the eastern part of scotland where where there are grouse moors um, you will have gamekeepers uh, at the rate of one per four thousand acres something like that and 80 percent of, of the gamekeepers work will be on predator control so he'll be shooting trapping and snaring uh, foxes crows and stoats mainly, and in these areas, these these predators are are well under control. They're certainly not elsewhere. In, in fact, um, there's a worrying increase, and, and Britain has one of the the highest population densities of of these types of predators in, in the Western world, which is a bit worrying. But uh, the the number of gamekeepers which are actually doing predator control has uh, decreased a lot um, in, in the last half century and we're seeing the effects of it now. How would somebody go about finding out who their local gamekeeper is um, or, or, or making contact with, with somebody? Um, I would say he, he almost certainly a farmer would know probably know the individuals on on the neighboring land because very often gamekeepers um, have a deal 
a sort of informal deal with um, neighbouring land where they do trapping of crows in particular and, and also fox control uh, out with their own land to prevent any uh, incursion coming in from outside. So I think that that's not a problem. It's good, it's good. Farmers are going to know the gamekeepers um, probably very well and, and what they do and so on. Um, if they don't, if they contacted the, uh, the, the nearest estate office, um, they would certainly be able to put them in touch. Perfect, perfect. And um, just on the issue of, of shooting as well, I know you've you've mentioned um, you've mentioned game birds a, a couple of times in the conversation. What's what's the the state of play with Scotland's game bird industry? And and uh, you know how are you optimistic about the 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 um, the shooting of, of of grouse and and what have you on on estates? Uh, not optimistic, no. Um, the, the Scottish grouse industry is, is worth about twenty-five million a year to the uh, to the Scottish economy. <clears throat> it employs a thousand people directly. That's gamekeepers mainly, uh, and a heck of a lot more of uh, people who come in part time for for beaters as beaters and and picking up and and helping run run a shoot day so it's it's a very important um part of the rural economy and the people that come to shoot grouse are, are normally coming from far away they need to stay in the local hotels <clears throat> they're quite wealthy people so they spend a lot of money on the hotels and food and drink and accommodation and buy gifts and so on so um it really is important to the rural economy that um that, that grouse uh, continue to do well the, they do have problems with um climate change has made um the last four or five years particularly difficult for grouse shooters grouse shooting uh, has been hit by low numbers of grouse so incomes on the shooting states have been depressed but um we're, we're hoping that the grouse more licensing system will uh, lock uh, nature scott and the scottish government into a sustainable uh, sport and industry which will benefit everyone all all sides of the um all sides of the rural economy, uh, people who, who live in the towns and the villages uh, in in the uh, ground shooting areas <clears throat> will benefit from the trade that it brings and uh, it will keep employment and population uh, vibrant in the upland communities. There's a lot of chatter right now around the issue of rewilding and reintroduction of species to the uplands. Where do you stand on this issue? I know a lot of farmers will be concerned and, and rightly have valid concerns about the potential reintroduction of big predators. But uh, from your perspective, are there any wider benefits to, to rewilding or is it a total non-starter? I think it's a no-go as far as I'm concerned. I can't see any benefit of it at all. Um, it may be fine in, in, in vast countries like uh, northern Russia or Canada, but Scotland's far too small. 
um, to even consider this. Uh, if, if you try it, um, lynxes and wolves and so on, <clears throat> the first thing they're going to do is they're going to see sheep and uh, most predators will go for the easiest prey uh, and that'll be a major problem. We're already seeing uh, the, the effects of um, introductions of big predators uh, damaging farming interests with the, the white-tailed sea eagles. Uh, they've been a big problem on lambs, and that just gives you a taste of, of what's to come if, uh, if this goes ahead. Uh, rewilding <clears throat> is a bit of a myth. Um, it, it's, a, it's a polite term for doing nothing, really. And if you look at areas of Britain where, where they have gone down this route, such as the uplands in Wales, um, Dartmoor, Bodmin Moor, Exmoor, <clears throat> if you walked across those moors, you would see very, very little of biodiversity. The moorland birds that we've been talking about, the waders, have gone. They, they went 30, 40 years ago. And all you'll see up there now is scavengers, buzzards, ravens, crows, um, eating roadkill and sheep that have died. And, and it's a very depressing picture. Also, uh, those places are vulnerable to, uh, to wildfires because um, obviously the, there's no gamekeeper, there's, there's no heather management or very little. Um, gorse gets out of control. And uh, this spring, 2021, even in the, these places which have quite a high rainfall, there were some really serious wildfires. So <clears throat> it's um, rewilding and reintroducing or introducing of large carnivores are both absolute no-nos as far as I'm concerned. Okay, no problem. Well, we are hoping to get some advocates for rewilding onto the podcast. So um, I appreciate your, your stance. Um, I think I think we've got a bit of common ground between the, the two of us, but uh, we'll get uh, get the other side of the story hopefully some point in the future as well. Well, Dick, I'm conscious of the time. I don't want to keep you all day. We're going to start winding down the podcast now, if that's okay. I'd just like to thank you for taking the time again to, to speak with us. I ask everybody who comes on the podcast the same question. What have you seen recently? Uh, what's happening within the industry right now that has really impressed you? What do you think more people should be paying attention to? What good practices or innovative ideas out there would you like to, to draw attention to? I think um, th there's optimism that uh, wildlife and biodiversity uh, have become more important to the, the politicians and the regulators. That, <clears throat> that's a plus. And I'm also optimistic about the uh, equipment and the techniques which are available now which make moorland management and heather management in particular much easier and safer than it used to be. So that uh, farmers, if they, if they want to get involved, if they're interested, they can do. And I think they would find it uh, a fascinating part of their estate to, to look after and, and see the benefits. That's great. Thanks very much. Well, on, on behalf of the Scottish Farm Advisory Service, um, thanks for taking the time to sit down with us, Dick. It's been really good to talk to you. Well, thank you, Alexander. And if, if there's any follow-up uh, from yourself or anyone who's listening, 
uh, I'd be happy to have a chat with them as well. And finally, Dick, how can people get in touch with you? How do we make contact with British Moorlands and uh, how do we access the advice that you're preparing? Oh, yes, thank you. Um, British Moorlands, uh, if, if you Google British Moorlands, you'll get our website and it has all the contact details there. It, it's mainly about grouse moor management, but um, it, it's, it's easily adapted to any other type of uh, conservation purpose. So please feel f free to contact uh, anytime through that. Dick Bartlett for the Farm Advisory Service. Thanks very much for coming on. It's been really good to talk to you. Good. Thank you very much, Alexander. Thank you for listening to this episode of Thrill of the Hill, part of Scotland's Farm Advisory Service podcast. If you have any questions about any of the content covered here today, please do not hesitate to get in touch at 0300 323 0161 or contact us by email at advice at faz.scot.